You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you for joining Tech Tank. I'm Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, co-host with Daryl West. I'm really excited about this episode today. On June 3rd, Congress finally released a bipartisan, bicameral discussion draft of comprehensive national data privacy legislation, which a lot of us have just been waiting for this draft of the American Data Privacy and Protection Act. The act is co-authored by U.S. Senator Roger Wicker out of Mississippi and House members Frank Pallone and Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Democrats in the House. Calls for data minimization, limited target advertising, data portability, enhanced protections for children, and seeks to combat my favorite subject, algorithmic discrimination. It also does something that we've not been able to do. Some have called this draft the three of the four corners and that is to preempt state laws and provide some limited right of action for consumers. It's just well known that a federal privacy framework is way overdue, and it's taken a lot of technological and privacy abuses for us to actually realize this coming out of COVID. More important, we're late. Other countries have actually started this process, like the General Data Protection Act, and now perhaps it's our turn. I'm excited about this conversation as well because perhaps finally we can have privacy legislation that protects the interest of historically marginalized communities whose data stands at the highest risk for misuse and exploitation. So I've got two experts with me today. Both are not unfamiliar to this conversation. In fact, one who I have to say I've almost known 20 years. Cam, it feels like that since I met you. I don't think I had my daughter at the time. Cam Carey, the Ann R. and Andrew H. Tisch Distinguished Visiting Fellow for the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution, my center. And Jennifer King, who is the Privacy and Data Policy Fellow at the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. They're here to join us today as we unpack this current legislative draft and also really dig deeper into the elements. Thank you both for coming on the podcast today. It's great to be here, Nicole. And Jen, welcome to Brookings. Thank you so much. So, Kev, I want to jump right in because I know you have spent most of your career sharing the importance of federal privacy legislation. Listen, I've known you so long that I know that if this does not get done, you are pitching a tent up on Capitol Hill to make sure we move the needle on this. I mean, since you were in the Obama administration, this has been your baby. And now we seem to be on track, Cam. And I'd like to know, first and foremost, how does that feel? But really, more importantly for our listeners, what do you make of this current bipartisan draft? And what do you think is likely to get amended during the markups? Well, thanks, Nicole. Look, it's exciting to see this at at long last. This has been 10 years plus for me and four years since Cambridge Analytica really set off a genuine national privacy debate. 
And Congress has done a lot of good work in that time. They've held a lot of hearings. There was a hearing a week ago from the day we're recording. And we've seen that members of Congress have gotten a lot more sophisticated about privacy compared to those first hearings with Mark Zuckerberg. And we are seeing that in the bill. It puts real boundaries around the collection, the use, and the sharing of information. And that is by far the most important thing for a privacy bill. You talked about the history of abuses that we've seen, and we have a system because we don't have a law that that sets those boundaries in which companies get to set their own rules. And the result is that we have these systems of information sharing that are just unlimited, leaky apps, ad tech, data broker. And this will really constrain those and add remedies, add individual rights, add public enforcement. And Cam, you know, when I think about why have you, this is coming off in the press as bipartisan, bicameral. Do you think there are going to be some areas, some leaky points that even in this bipartisan draft, there'll be some pushback? I'm sure. I mean, obviously the most important thing, this is three corners. It's not all four corners of the two commerce committees that oversee this issue because Senator Maria Cantwell, who chairs the Senate Commerce Committee, has her own bill. She's criticized the bipartisan draft, and she has been holding out in negotiations for a long time. So it was a four-cornered negotiation. The three corners have gone ahead with their own bill. It's going to take a bipartisan agreement to get this done. A partisan bill simply cannot pass in a divided Congress where you need 60 votes in the Senate. So unfortunately, this thing is not yet on a glide path to passage. There are some issues to hammer out in terms of the how particularly a private right of action works and also on harms and duties of loyalty. Those are the big issues. There are other issues that stakeholders are raising that that will need to be fixed and could end up causing hangups. So time is short. The election season is on the horizon and it's hard to legislate in that environment. So there is really about a month or two to get this done. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I mean, I think you said it best in the privacy legislation paper that was put out, you know, at Brookings before some of these conversations. So interesting how Cantwell was actually aligned with a lot of what Wicker was talking about, right? And Jen, one of the areas that's proposed in the act, which I know you care about, which is this whole idea of targeted advertising and how they potentially threaten civil liberties. Talk to me, and I know you're at Stanford, and people would say, well, there's so many privacy advocates. Jen King is doing great work, but she's also unpacking what's under the hood. I think that's a really important perspective, right, Jennifer? Because at the end of the day, this bill has to apply to real-life technological cadence as well as people. So talk to me a little bit about your reaction to the inclusion of targeted ad spaces sort of being perceived as unlawful based on how companies actually use them. Give us some background. Like, what do you think is different about this bill that could be interesting to people like you? 
Right. So it's a huge step, I think, in kind of acknowledging that targeted advertising could potentially even cause harm. Because I feel like for the last 15 years that we begin really talking about privacy online, it's been this question of, you know, shopping in the sense of, well, it's really about like what I'm shopping for and my consumer preferences. And it really, I think, in some ways was dismissed as a as a civil rights issue, for example, because you can kind of at the end of the day just say, well, we just want to target ads. Like, what's so wrong about that? People don't like spam. And so the fact that we're actually calling targeted advertising out as a threat to potential civil liberties, I think is just a huge advance, which just wasn't on the table even a decade ago. I think Cambridge Analytica was maybe one of those threshold events that really, even though it in itself wasn't so much about targeted advertising, the fact that people began to really understand that, again, it wasn't just about advertising. It wasn't just that I was getting ads for the shoes I looked for five minutes ago when I searched for them. It was this bigger issue of profiling and the fact that data about me in one context was being gathered and reused across others. And so the fact that we the discussion in a bill like this has come that far, I think, is just a really significant moment. That said, I'm surprised that it doesn't say more about inferences, for example. So it seems like it's a, again, it's an advance, but I feel like targeted ads are singled out in a way that makes it sound like it's just about the ads. And it might be that we'll see some more discussion of the inferences that are drawn that allow those ads to be generated. But I just noticed in particular as I went through it that there wasn't much discussion of the mechanics behind the targeted ads, just the targeted ads themselves, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, I kind of saw the same thing. It's so funny. What's so interesting about the draft legislation, and I think both Cam and you can agree, is it's giving people much more agency, right? So more consumers are going to have agency over their data in ways that can be like, it can affect targeted advertising if you're aware that this is happening to you. But the interesting thing is that the technologies that we engage are so opaque. So it'd be interesting to see how that actually gets defined. And particularly, Jen, I mean, I, I'd love to just ask this question of you because I know that there are companies working very hard, for example, to make sure that they have more inclusive targeted advertising. Is this going to just make all targeted ads bad for consumers when it comes to your privacy protections? I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know what you mean by bad in the sense that, well, I guess there's another thing that I don't see discussed in at least the draft I read, which is just the question of contextual advertising versus targeted, right? That's right. And so let me just make this point, which is that I've heard a lot of people tell me what's wrong with targeted advertising in the sense of I feel seen in a positive way when I get ads that recognize me for some state of my being. And in particular, I've heard this multiple times from the LGBTQ um, community of like, look, I like getting those ads because it's an acknowledgement that my identity as a gay person is validated. And so you run this interesting line between people having some of those preferences and moving into the world of, well, absolutely everything about me. So yeah, I mean, not that I would expect this bill to have a call out on contextual advertising, but I mean, I think at least the debates we've been having in the privacy community kind of at large has been a call for more contextual-based advertising away from this profile-based targeted advertising. That's right. And Cam, you know, I want you to jump in because I want to go into other parts of it, but I found this to be totally fascinating as well. We released a report at CTI by Jinyang Zhang, who is now a PhD, Dr. Zhang, who basically said that even when Facebook switched up their models for targeting 
African Americans in advertising, they had a greater precision of discrimination based on how the model was able to pick up other attributes and traits. The question is, again, going forward, and this is just a challenge with any type of privacy legislation that we're trying to apply to moving and iterative systems, will people sort of buy into the fact that, hey, this marketing of these shoes is really creating other outputs and outcomes and disparate impact. Cam, you want to say something about that before I go into data minimization and portability? or Because I'm feeling like maybe there's an ecosystem that's here, you know, that that's the context versus the different parts of it. Well, I think the bills actually do have a call out for contextual advertising and preserve and exclude from targeted advertising first party advertising that's based on website visits and other relationship-based information. And importantly, the civil rights provisions have an exclusion to allow for expanding an applicant or participant or customer pool by increasing diversity and inclusion. So I think some of the things that you are talking about are preserved there and and will be enabled. But you know, it really puts constraints on the things like beacons and and pixels and so on that have been used to bypass people's preferences about being tracked. And that's led to this arms race in which we have an information ecosystem that is has been really broken. And I was at a meeting last week where it was clear that advertising world ad tech is looking at this with fear and loathing, but I think the handwriting has been on the wall since Google and Apple moved to get rid of third-party cookies to defeat some of the tracking methods. So I think they are coming to grips with the reality that things are going to need to change. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I, I do want to, Cam, sort of talk a little bit about the standards that are being set for data minimization and portability. There has been some pushback on the current draft. And for people who are listening, we are recording this and there may be changes in this draft. So we actually put that out as a disclaimer in case you're listening to this and you say, hey, there's been some more changes. Well, we recognize that, right? Because that's why it's a legislative draft. But the question I have for you, Cam, is like on the datamization and portability sides of it, there are some industry advocates who are arguing that that would lower their revenues and quality of service. How do you address those concerns? I mean, where is industry falling from what you understand and hear on the street with regards to this draft? You know, I think there are concerns about that because information, the collection of information and unforeseen inferences and connections are, are part of research, part of big data, part of machine learning. And this may have some limits on, on that. But I think there is an exception for research. Maybe that can be made broader, provided that the research is subject to things that are the equivalent of human uh, subject to research standards. I also think, and I'm uh, proposing in a blog post we'll have up on uh, Brookings' uh, this week and have talked to people on the Hill about it, that there needs to be some play in the joints for data collection. Something that we talked about in our report a couple of years ago, Nicole, that you need to allow for the edge cases for innovation. You don't want to create a loophole 
So the notion is that along with a list of categorically permitted uses like system maintenance, fulfillment of orders, security, that people reasonably expect data is going to be used for, that there also ought to be some allowance for new uses that are consistent with the original purposes, consistent with the expectations of individuals and the context of their relationship with the business. But the business that's using that exception would have the burden to show that you meet the expectations. So it's not open-ended. Yeah, I agree with that. And Cam, you remember we talked a lot about particularly one way to frame, like I like the way you put it, the joints, is really thinking about, as everybody knows, I care about civil rights compliance and how you actually align that duty of care around some of those civil rights thresholds. Jed, what's so interesting about this conversation that we're having in this episode and the conversations that are happening in Congress, they're happening perhaps a little late because we do have states that have enacted their own state privacy laws. And there is this attempt, which I think is some of the current reason why we can't get to the fourth corner on this whole idea of preemption of state laws. Obviously, the bill provides for certain carve-outs with the Illinois, for example, the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. There's parts of the California Privacy Act. But Jen, just in your space, thinking about state laws and now the introduction of federal law, is this preemption authority going to leave some of these states with limited capacity or greater capacity? I mean, how do you see this working out? Right. I've been a little concerned about that, especially with given that we have a new agency that is launching currently. And I admit, not being a lawyer, I don't know the fine points of preemption. And so, for example, I'm assuming that if this passes, it doesn't necessarily preempt every aspect of California's law. I might be wrong. But, you know, what is our new privacy agency essentially left to do at the state level <laughs> when you pass a law like this? I suppose that we could potentially pass some additional laws in California for things that aren't necessarily covered by this act. And that would keep those folks busy. But, I mean, I'm glad, I was glad to see that Illinois is carved out in particular. Because I I would presume that gives other states the opportunity to continue focusing on facial surveillance as one particular issue that I don't recall seeing covered in this draft. Cam, thinking about what Jen said and now this agency being developed in California, how is this going to work when we start thinking about the various states that have already put in place state privacy laws? I think Jen's asking the right question, Nicole, is what would there be for the California agency to to do? I think what's important about the federal bill and, and I think what makes preemption viable in this situation is that it goes beyond what any of the state laws have done. And particularly, most of the state laws, this is true of California, are still kind of back in this regime of notice and choice that's been the way we've done privacy law for the last 20 plus years in the U.S., where companies put out a privacy policy that somebody described as really more of a data use agreement, and then they're held to those promises. But that's what lets them make the rule. And we all just click through these ridiculous notices and cookie menus and so forth, because it's just 
a huge amount of friction. It is more than even privacy sophisticated people can deal with. So having some boundaries on collection use and sharing as we have here with the data minimization is a much better approach. And that goes beyond what the states do. Plus, there are the discrimination provisions. There are provisions for some accountability and transparency for the use of algorithms. All of that advances the ball beyond what the states have done to this point and and beyond what Europe has done in its general data protection regulation. So this is not just the U.S. catching up, but I think stepping up in the plate with some new privacy leadership. Yeah, and I get that. And I want to go into how this compares to the international. But Jen, I want to bring you back in because I know this is an area you and I both talk about a lot, which is the algorithmic discrimination, right? And there's a potential that there could be a big overreach to that as well. I mean, what are you thinking? I mean, will privacy legislation essentially help mitigate the algorithmic discrimination? Or do you still think that even though we've called out a particular use case, and there are other use cases that have been called out in legislation, like on the financial side, is this going to help us with that? Or is this something that should really be carefully looked at separately? That is a section that left me with more questions than answers at the moment. For one, like the question of preemption that we just discussed, California has this very GDPR-esque automated decision-making component in it. So it wasn't clear to me off the top of my head if this if that would be preempted by this federal law. I assume it would be. Basically, the algorithmic assessment portion of this proposed law looks basically like the Algorithmic Accountability Act ported into this bill. And one of my first questions in going through it was, are we assessing here privacy-specific harms? Because it's written very generally right now. And so the scope, it left me with a bunch of questions in terms of what, in the context of this bill, what exactly is it trying to accomplish? It just seemed like it was a porting in of a very general concept into this bill. And I don't have an answer to that right now. (laughs) What exactly, what types of algorithmic harm are we going to be assessing? What types of risk are companies going to be on notice for? Is it just in this context, specifically risks related to covered data in this bill? So again, yeah, I was definitely unsure kind of where this is going to go. And maybe this will be one of the discussion points that will get more refinement over the next two months that we'll actually see a little bit more clarity over exactly what types of impacts they're, they're, they're thinking about with this bill. Because I would imagine that if it were over general, then there would be questions about, especially if we pass something like the AAA, how does that end up kind of interacting with this bill, right? Which that bill in itself is also fairly generic in terms of talking about risk and harm. So I would imagine there might be more specificity needed to really clarify exactly what we're talking about here. But I mean, maybe at the end of the day, it's a question of using algorithms in combination with this particular set of data that this bill is trying to protect and thinking through what harms may emerge or trying to anticipate what harms may emerge from the use of that data. Um, So I I don't know if that struck you in any way as well. Yeah, no, it did because, you know, there are so many bills on algorithmic accountability. The question is, where in the process will the data privacy legislation kick in? Cam, did you have any comments on that? Because I want you to also comment on the international comparisons. Mm -hmm. Where are we Mm -hmm. bearing? 
Look, on algorithms, I think that's a place where the bills need to be strengthened because the definition of algorithm right now covers sort of everything from a simple Excel spreadsheet that somebody looks at in making a decision to things like algorithms, AI, making decisions about criminal justice, sentencing, and parole. So it needs to be clear that it's about significant machine-based decisions along the lines of you know, what GDPR does with things that have significant legal effects or similar effects on people's lives. I think the algorithmic accountability and assessment provisions do help to advance the ball. They do focus particularly on discrimination. There are other provisions about privacy impact assessments that could get at some of the privacy harms. But I think the process of requiring those assessments, making them public, having the Federal Trade Commission review them will be a big step towards improving policymakers, societies' understanding of algorithms and the effects that they can have on people. Yeah, there's going to be a lot more discussion on that. Jen, we need to compare notes because I think this is going to be a conversation that we probably want to have and we want to make sure it harmonizes, obviously, with these other bills. There's just going to add one point, which is if you think about data minimization, too, there's this question of, I don't know if this, how well this will overlap with the GDPR legitimate interest provision or if they're seen as complementary and we've just basically restated it in a different way. But I've been thinking about data minimization or at least data specification as a way of trying to combat some of the harms we are seeing with artificial intelligence, for example. And so and this just raises a question to me of whether we'll see something similar to what we've seen with privacy policies, which is when companies try to specify what they're going to use data for, they'll end up coming up with these very generic and general descriptions and try to get around this question of reusing data outside of the context in which it was collected. And so that's one of the pieces I think related to this that I wondered about. Yeah, no, we need to follow up. Let's compare notes between the three of us because we want to keep this in action, but also make sure there's some clarification there. Cam, before we wrap up, I have one question and then I want to ask you both your opinion going forward. In the testimony of Bertram Lee at the last hearing, he suggested that the legislation that we put forth in the U.S. should have greater harmonization with the GDPR, which has come out of the EU. But we also know that they have different enforcement capacities than we have, right, when it comes to agencies. I think the U.S. is sort of mirroring that with the state AG authority. But I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, should we be allowing the GDPR to sort of guide this discussion of where we're going in terms of enforcement and other international implications? Or is this one that we need to do as ourselves and then see how it compares with GDPR later? Well, I think we need to do some alignment with GDPR, but this does in some important respects, I think particularly in the definition of the data that is covered, which pretty much mirrors what's in GDPR and also puts in place the boundaries that we've talked about. And that's, I think, roughly equivalent to the GDPRs requiring a lawful basis for data processing. I think that having some more flexibility, tiering the obligations as the bipartisan draft does according to the scale of and complexity of the 
entity that's collecting the data and according to kind of the nature and the sensitivity of the data that they collect are all appropriate things to do. So I think having something that tracks GDPR in important respects, but also incorporates some of the flexibility and the sort of more iterative approach to policymaking and lawmaking that I think is characteristic of of a common law system. I think those are good things. But I think at the end of the day, getting this legislation passed is important for America's soft power in the world. It's important for the political process of dealing with European data transfers, an issue that's been plaguing US-EU relations since before I joined the Department of Commerce. And there's an agreement that's going to need to get approved in the EU. Having a privacy law in the US will help to get that agreement approved and deal with the data transfers from the EU to the US. Yeah, it's interesting. I think going forward, we have to consider those implications, Cam, and we have to consider them in ways where they can strengthen that harmonization that we'll have with other countries or negate some of the progress that we've made in other areas. It's a very interesting area to watch, and we should continue to watch that at CTI. Listen, I like this whole idea. This bill should pass. (laughs) Now, we've heard this before, my friends. And we know that this is not coming without opposition, as many of in the media have referred to it, a three or four corner strategy. There's been a little pushback by the chamber, and we've already spoke about some industry pushback in terms of cost and associated with some of the lawsuits. And then there's Senator Cantwell, who's actually given us some pause to reconsider areas in this negotiation around the private right of action, safe harbors, whistleblowers, among other things. Jen, I'm going to go with you. And this is my last question. I don't ask anybody to put your hands on the genie ball and tell us, our listeners, what's going to happen. But do you think it's a passable bill in its current form, or do you think a little bit more work needs to be done? But what do you think, would you predict in the future, is going to be the case with this legislative draft? Oh, boy. (laughs) I know. And and I don't want you to, I don't think you should offer for policy, because you're sitting (laughs) in Stanford. I understand it, my friend. What do you think overall? I mean, is this a generally one that should be considered in its current form or one that there should be some back and forth for a minute before we get to final approval? (laughs) Yeah. Color me pleasantly surprised. I went into this skeptical as I have with every single iteration of privacy legislation that has been teed up for the last 15 years. And usually I don't even spend a lot of time delving into the details because I'm like, it'll never pass. So this one, I spent considerably more time looking at the details. There's a few things in here that I honestly was surprised to see. So from private right of action to the coverage of nonprofit or inclusion of nonprofits, which is a big deal. And then finally, we'll see if this survives, but the universal opt-out, which I would assume would take the form of something like global privacy control. Those are some pretty amazing things to see from my perspective in a bill that I was anticipating a lot more kind of washing out of some of the core issues that I feel like advocates and researchers have been calling for for years that I don't think other bills have included. So that made me very happy. Not that my happiness is going to be what guides the bill to passage. <laughs> right, right. But I guess my take would be that from coming from the side that probably more aligns with advocates. I see a lot to be happy about, and certainly I think it is an improvement over 
some of the state bills that we've seen, including here in California, which I don't think ever went far enough on some of these issues, especially the private right to action. And wow, like if some of those points stay in there, pretty encouraged. This is one of those things. It's like the voice. You put up your little card in terms of you give it a 10, a 9, an 8, or 3. It sounds like you're somewhere in the middle that there's still hope. Cam, take us out. Are we going to pass privacy legislation once and for all in the next month or so? Or do you think we're going to have to bring this into the next part, you know, when Congress comes back from recess? Well, Nicole, you know that I've been (laughs) optimistic about privacy legislation for a long time and a cheerleader. But I have been saying for a couple of years now, based on the convening that we've done at Brookings, the work that we've done, that this thing was ready to move, that stakeholders, industry, consumer advocates, civil rights, privacy advocates were ready to make the compromises that were needed to get to privacy legislation. And we are seeing that now. And Jen is absolutely right that this is a surprisingly strong bill, but that is a reflection of how far we have come on this issue, how much privacy is a mainstream uh, issue. And we are far, far closer now than we have ever been. So there is the opportunity to get this passed. And I think that that can be a win-win for both parties in Congress, for industry, for consumer advocates who are pretty happy about this bill. And it's a win-win because for all of those, it would deliver something for every man, woman, and child in America and provide both businesses and consumers a basis for trust in existing technology and information use. Look, Cam, that was, I think, a great appeal to all those who are listening to make sure that we keep the momentum going on this because both Jennifer and you know that we've had a lot of starts and stops. And the more starts and stops we have, the innovation continues to move, which is my fear that we'll put out something that won't apply to some of the emerging and sophisticated systems that we have. Listen, Cam Carey, Jen King, Great, great conversation on the state of data privacy. Like I said, I still plead the the fifth that this might change in terms of conversation if Congress keeps the momentum going and we try to bridge that fourth corner. But for the most part, these are really important issues. And I think very great clarification of what we think is actually in this draft from our point of view. So please continue to follow the work of Cam and Jen as we put out more stuff in this space and follow CTI. We have several scholars also looking at this area. Thank you, Jen and Cam. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Tech Tank, where we take big bits and we turn them into palatable bites. So that way you can understand some of the latest communication policies issues that are happening in Washington, D.C. and across the world. I'm Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.